0: hauling just look at the load i'm hauling hard work i hit it harder ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town camo hat and a farmer's town
1: Welcome to FastLine Fast Track, presented by
2: FastLine Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of FastLine Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, Tom Oswald of the United Soybean Board talks about a new online tool aimed at providing in-depth research results and troubleshooting information for farmers. National Farmers Union President Rob LaRue discusses some of the pressing issues on the minds of the nation's farmers and ranchers, and we profile Corn Warrior Season 4 competitor Jake Droz. Finally, we hear the music of country music hitmaker Craig Campbell. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go! Well, first up this week on the program, I want to welcome back Clegghorn, Iowa farmer, Tom Oswald, who is a director and the supply chain action team chairman for the United Soybean Board, which is the checkoff program for the soybean industry. And Tom, welcome into Fastline Fast Track. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. So one of the important jobs of the checkoff program is the funding of research programs that return data that helps farmers do their jobs better. And the United Soybean Board recently announced the redesigned Soybean Research and Information Network website, soybeanresearchinfo.com. And that's a joint effort between the United Soybean Board and the North Central Soybean Research Program intended to give farmers a virtual resource to help them produce soybeans more efficiently. So when did the work begin on this redesigned website?
1: Well, really, it was kind of an evolution of work. Uh, The NCSRP, North Central Soybean Research Program, recognized a number of years ago that, you know, there's a lot of research out there that farmers have paid for over the years. And how do we collect, you know, uh, catalog that? How do we keep track of it? And so that was kind of the roots of this thing. Quite frankly, I don't remember exactly how many years ago that started, but I know there was one key researcher kind of took it on in his own personal effort, keeping track of some of these projects. And then as it became clear that that was a, a good effort needed to continue it got it evolved to the soybean research information network i think one of the one things the, the key word in there being network and collaboration if you think about it you know for your listeners who may not be uh, farmers who pay the soybean checkoff, the soybean checkoff is a deduction from the soybean check one half of one percent of the value so if you had a $1,000 check, you would have one-half of 1%. Of that one-half of 1%, it is shared equally between the state where those soybeans were grown, or, or so, you know the, the soybean grown, and then one-half goes to the national check off the USB. But within that, so you have funding that happens in the state, you have funding that happens at the USB level that comes from the soybean. Then you have the collaborative efforts, such as the North Central Soybean Research Program that is, runs from Pennsylvania over to Kansas up to North Dakota around Michigan. And so you have these regional efforts that may have individual state components contributing to that, or the national contributing to that. Um, oftentimes in assistance, you know, in, in handling some of the, the intricacies, but in general, that is a separate thing. We end up with these multitude of organizations funding research projects, looking for leverage to do that, you know, you don't know is is the best uh, research on a certain disease, you know, in Ohio, North Dakota, Kansas. There are, you know, other research organizations like that around the country. I think we're up to four now, regional. Key point being, they all do investments in production research and how do you keep track of that information how do you manage that information such that when someone's got a question you can get value out of that investment it's very similar to the business you do with a safe farm equipment you know so there's 10,000 pieces of equipment for sale but if no one knows what's out there what's the relative value so this whole mindset resulted now in a very intuitive product the website, the Soybean Research Information Network website, um, that just can take you anywhere. I I can get lost for a half an hour in here, even if I'm not looking for a specific issue. When you have a specific issue, it really can help you take it right down to a usable level of information. So it's just really cool and, and it's easy to get enthused about having seen this evolution.
2: So off the top of your head, what types of information will farmers find on the website?
1: Oh, okay. So, like right now, I've got the page up. You've got agronomic, soybean disease, soybean pest resources, aquaculture. But what's really neat, there's a lot of tools. The front page is very intuitive. So let's say and you go, I got this bug, I don't know what it is. You can click on pests. Then it takes you to a list of pests, a lot of photograph, a lot of really good usable content. Because let's face it, a lot of us are out there going, something's not right, I don't like what I see, You can take what you see and deploy it to the website and and it just really works well. You know, it's very intuitive. I like that. For example, because we've been dry, you know, spider mites are the conversation in the neighborhood. So if you're interested in spider mites, you can find a whole lot of content, say, on spider mites. Maybe uh, an issue you have is a soybean disease uh, that's fairly obscure. Click on Diseases agronomics, fertility, you name it. But it's all rooted in this research work that has gone back in, in many years. And uh, that's what's really good. This isn't just you know, a, a summary of fluff, if you will. It's not Google taking you places you may not want to go. This is soybean investment research being enabled by a collaboration, and that's what's neat. That's leverage, and that's what we're trying to do with the checkoff.
2: So once farmers find information on a certain subject on the site, if they've got additional questions or need to go deeper, does the USB or any of the qualified state soybean boards provide any kind of agronomist support or experts that they can lead farmers to who might be able to help answer some of those questions?
1: Although I can't say there's specific individual on staff it's not like you know we have a staff agronomist necessarily you may have something of that depending on the different states but the key thing is you can go down to the state you can drill down it's a very intuitive process meaning okay i'm from let's say illinois if you were from illinois you could go and find the illinois soybean organizations or maybe you can find the illinois extension people maybe you say you know what this is a unique problem now, for example, midge, which is happening in four states, you know, maybe it's a unique problem that my best contact source may instead, instead of being an Iowa, may be a Nebraskan. And I think that's what's key is it allows you to look at your issue that you are trying to research yourself from a number of different directions. And the power is, you know, when you come around the circle and realize you've really covered the bases, gives you confidence in the decision you may take from that information and I think that's what's really neat. Again, it's not so distracting like a Google or something else where you may end up all over the place. This is really focused, it's soybean focused. Again, it's paid for by farmer focused and um, it gives you places to go further which I like, you know. again, your respective states or whatever.
2: So now that you have this powerful tool up and running, how will farmer feedback dictate future research that's undertaken by the United Soybean Board and the Qualified State Soybean Boards?
1: Well, we continually look for, from the production side, and I'm the chair of, of the supply action team at United Soybean Board, which looks at a lot of these production issues. And the thing is, when you have a board like United Soybean Board, our connections to our state boards we farmers are always talking about what problems we have those things essentially get uh, wound into our, our our network again of staff you know that goes out and starts looking at it and say hey we've got these problems that need to be looked at you know we also look for what i'm going to say i call it filling the holes or filling the gaps we know that industry say working on yield But how does that yield impacted by a pest that may be a regional pest? You know, industry doesn't always fix everybody's problems. And so that's where, again, soybean farmers investing in research projects to our value. That's how we fill these gaps. And so we don't want to have redundancies. So our ability to look at information that's already out there, most of which was funded by checkoff money, and then say, hey, have we visited this problem in the past? Do we need to update that, that information? You know, again, we're trying to reduce those redundancies, which helps give us that resiliency and efficiency for the future. So, again, because of the network, that's where the power is. And that's why you find the word network in soybean research information networks.
2: Well, again, that website is soybeanresearchinfo.com, soybeanresearchinfo.com. So I hope you go and check that out. If you're in the soybean industry and also uh, make sure you head on over to their website and check out the Tech Tool Shed, which we talked about with Tom on episode 12 of the Fast Side Fast Track podcast a little over a year ago. And and they keep adding to that and they are working really hard to provide the resources uh, that soybean farmers need to, to understand uh, crop to understand what what uh, helps uh, maximize efficiency in the industry and uh, ma- making the most of those checkoff dollars. So, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line, Fast Track to break all this down for us.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed visiting with you, and I got to say again, that's what we do at the United Soybean Board and the rest of the checkoff is we're farmers deploying farmer dollars for farmer benefit, and we look at that all the time.
2: Again, we've been talking with Tom Oswald, a director for the United Soybean Board. Well, next up on the program this week, we had the chance to sit down and talk with Rob LaRue, the president of the National Farmers Union, to discuss some of the topics that are on the minds of farmers, ranchers, and others in the agriculture industry. Rob, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track.
3: Thank you. Good to be
2: here. Well, these are certainly uncertain times, to say the least, in our world. But nonetheless, they're busy times in agriculture, and there are many, many forces at play here as the nation's farmers and ranchers compete on an increasingly competitive global playing field. Your job is to be out there every day advocating for the folks who make agriculture work. Before we dive into some of the specific topics, tell us a bit about what that mission looks like.
3: Yeah, well for National Farmers Union, not unlike other organizations. Our mission is really focused on uh, farm families as well as the communities in which they live, right? So uh, predominantly these rural communities and in situations like this, it's not only being focused on ag markets and making sure that folks are receiving a fair fair price uh, for their work, um and that everything's functioning properly. We know times have been stressed, but in these really extraordinary times like we're facing now, it steps even beyond like the impact it's having directly on agriculture. And it's also rural health and all these other issues that uh rural communities are facing on a daily basis, but uh, most effect or most of that impact, as we know, is especially hard on farm families.
2: Well, one of those key issues the National Farmers Union has focused on recently is that of innovation in agriculture. And that's why last week you submitted comments with recommended improvements to the USDA's agricultural innovation agenda, so it better reflects the needs of the agriculture community. Uh, One of those key points is climate change, which has been and will continue to be a major challenge to farmers and ranchers.
3: Yeah, well, income for farmers has been in the decline and and really stressful over the last several years, right? And that's just... uh, uh, because of trade agreements, because of uh, market disruptions in other ways. Obviously, right now it's because of pandemic, uh, but we also know that uh, on the for the long-term horizon, uh, the big challenge that's out there is climate, uh, and that's because we are going to see uh, longer droughts, uh, uh, you know, more cases of really heavy rain. Um, and uh, pest invasions. um, And so we need innovation to really be focused on uh, ways that farmers can adapt. Farmers on their own are incredibly adaptable um, and really can try to figure out what situation works best for them. Uh, But when you have a global situation like the long-term implications of climate change, uh, we have to be focused on ways that we can be helping, uh, that USDA can be helping, uh, farmers uh, and ranchers uh, best address those challenges as we look for.
2: So you're also pushing for transparency, you know, guarding against politicizing and manipulating key research, and that includes making sure that the results of publicly funded research remain public and that funding sources for private research are fully disclosed.
3: It, it's critical for farmers, right? Um, there is no doubt that we get a lot of really useful, good uh, research coming out of uh, Companies, you know, uh, multinational corporations who have the money and the resources uh, to put into research on whether it's new seed varieties, new traits uh, that might help address challenges. Anytime it's proprietary, there's always that question about what else is out there. And so we have to combine that effort on the kind of private company side with a very public and transparent uh, USDA uh, research so that farmers know that they're getting the best information and the best solutions out there and then they can make the better choices.
2: Well, we see more of these partnerships and the government sells them as a a way to keep taxpayer costs down and also bring in resources that the government just doesn't have at its disposal. And I know we had some uh, audio a couple weeks ago of U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue talking about how high he was on A lot of these partnerships and a lot of them are coming from uh, companies uh, within Silicon Valley and other places that bring uh, a big tech. And a lot of those companies have a lot to gain. But the one thing that you guys are really fighting for is a seat for independent farmers and and, and small farmers to have a seat at the table and a hand in this innovation.
3: Yeah, as we look at um, uh, innovation as well, farmers today know what um, uh, that a lot of their data and information is of huge value uh, to these companies. Uh, but we have to do whatever we can to kind of protect the data um, and make sure that farmers are at the table and so forth. Any farmer out there who wants to fix their own tractor or wants to uh, do something else with seed, they already know uh, the cost of trying to uh, use some of the current tech that can benefit them what the restrictions are and so the more that we can get innovations uh, developed uh, that take advantage of uh, the partnerships that's great Uh, but farmers have to be at the table
2: well, another segment of agriculture that you and many others have been paying close attention to lately is the beef industry, which has endured market disruptions and volatility over the past few months. And even prior to that, producers questioned what they believe to be low live cattle prices in comparison to box beef prices when the big meat processors were making large profits.
3: You know, again, we, we are really glad that USDA is finally focused on this um is critically important. It's a shame that it took independent ranchers out there screaming and yelling about what they have seen as potential price manipulation and price fixing uh in these markets because markets were moving in the opposite direction of where they should be. Um and we know that consumers are paying the price for that. Um and uh ranchers are paying the price for that. And the packers in the middle are making profits. So um uh, we're glad that USDA is focused on it. Uh, we're certainly going to hold them uh, to account uh, to keep focused on this. Um, they certainly haven't exonerated uh, the meat packers, And uh, Farmers Union is also engaged in the courts uh, to continue to make this, uh, you know, because ranchers know uh, that these markets aren't um, uh, transparent. They're not functioning properly. Um, and quite frankly, we need more competition in that space.
2: Well, I, I think a lot of people looked at that announcement uh, and said, okay, well, it's nice that they're acknowledging the fact they're doing something about it or looking at doing something about it, but what really is being done about it? Do you guys have any specifics in terms of uh, different steps that uh, that you would like to see happen to make it a more fair and equitable process for everybody around?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, we need to put more teeth into the law that's actually there, uh, the Packers and Stockyards Act. Um, uh there is very little price transparency there in the first place um usda uh needs to be asking congress for 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 more authority to be able to step into those markets now the report signaled that they are going to begin to have that dialogue and there should be dialogue uh, but we would need to see more leadership in actually pushing uh, for those changes we're going to be doing it right on behalf of ranchers out there uh, but uh, we really need USDA to step up and do more in that space. Uh, but it's beyond that too, it's a couple of other things. It's also making sure that uh, to that question of competition, uh, that we have real enforcement on antitrust. When you have four packers controlling over 85 percent of the beef market, very similar trends in, um, in pork and even higher concentration in other sectors, um, we know what happens uh, in those kinds of economics. You get higher prices, you know, less obviously competition, um, and less innovation. Um, and those things combined uh, really are at the disadvantage of consumers and uh, obviously to farmers and ranchers. So we need more uh, enforcement on antitrust. We need more teeth in the Packers and Stockyards Act. Uh, we're still a couple years out potentially from another farm bill. Uh, but I'd say we can't really wait uh, to get that teeth in there. You know, in some respects, we know, uh, and we also recognize that it's crazy that for a single um, farmer to show that he's been harmed um, uh, in this industry, he has to be through this law. He has to show that the entire industry has been um, uh, that that uh, has been harmed. And that's a burden that no individual farmer out there can ever reach that threshold. So uh, the standards are crazy. Uh, they're antiquated. And uh, so we need to bring new teeth uh, into that, uh, as well as bring more enforcement on the antitrust side. Uh, that's not just in agriculture, quite frankly. We know that we're seeing this also in tech and a lot of other things that impacts all of our lives.
2: Want to kind of dovetail with that. Uh, we can't get out of here without talking about the effects of COVID-19, something else on everybody else's mind and the uh, impact they've had on the indica- the agriculture industry and on food prices. You know, you guys put out a report here last week or so that said uh, in the past 12 months, food prices at the grocery store have increased by a little over five and a half percent, which is the largest annual increase in nearly a decade. And then when you look at those numbers a little closer, it's a little more severe for certain things, such as beef, which is up... Uh, year over year. And then herein lies the rub. Uh, Farmers look at those numbers and say, whoa, wait a minute here. You know, we're not seeing that trickling down to us what's happening here. And then we're seeing on average prices that farmers are receiving are about uh, 4.8% lower than last year and livestock prices down 17% year over year. And in fact, I I know I have seen another statistic thrown out there that says farmers receive uh, roughly 8 cents of every dollar spent on food at home or away from home. And, uh, you know, part of that disparity over the past three or four months comes from the disruptions in the supply chain. Uh, and then there's other more inexplicable factors
3: there. Yeah, well, that's very true. And and first of all, going back on this trend, I mean, the share of the food dollar that the farmer receives uh, across the board for all the uh, food products out there has been decreasing over the number of years. Um, that's on top of the fact that farmers Are also seeing all of their input costs and so forth go up. Uh, So those margins just start, you know, continue to disappear. Uh, And that's a trend that is not sustainable and, you know, that farm families can't stay in business that way. Uh, That's no secret. Uh, But then you lay on top of that uh, in this pandemic, um, uh, you know, the impact that we saw with things that were really outside of everybody's control uh, with the uh, kind of supply chain disruptions when everybody stopped going to restaurants and suddenly shifted to cooking and eating at home. Uh, and so grocery stores were just inundated. And, you know, that we also had this phenomenon in that situation where you had um, the supply chains backing up. Um, you had the institutions like schools, uh, restaurants and support uh, not buying anything farmers having to destroy crops, farmers having to dump all that milk, uh, and food banks who were sitting there with empty shelves at the time, because they were relying on those same supply chains to fill their shelves in order to help hungry folks. So this was a perfect storm in, in many ways where you had all of these things happen. And even the, uh, with all of this surplus and product being Uh, destroyed, you also had the number of folks who were needed help and needed food uh, were also um, uh, turning to food banks that were scrambling to try to get uh, that met. Now, that has mostly been uh, shifted and we've adjusted to that, Uh, but we still have this fact where you have these weird market situations um, and uh, there will be continuing uh, questions about price fixing and price manipulation, but the farmer share um, is what we're seeing in the data and, and farmers know this every day, uh, when they get their t- uh, checks in and, and they balance everything at the kitchen table, uh, it's, uh, the economics are not working for them. So
2: how else have you seen the pandemic affect agriculture and what impact do you believe uh, this whole thing is going to have on the industry moving forward?
3: Well, it's really different uh, depending on where you're at uh, and depending on what you're growing and so forth, right? Because there are parts of the country where fruit and vegetable growers, for example, uh, are actually doing great because their states um, and their uh, their ability to quickly kind of adapt and connect uh, to consumers out there who want to buy direct, that was wonderful. You also have a lot of fruit and vegetable growers who suddenly saw all of their markets disappear overnight um, and for them, they're scrambling, trying to get out from all of those losses. So I think that, you know, they will be looking forward, uh, looking to uh, diversify their uh, supply chain um, and build some more resilience in that. I think one of the things that I'm hopeful will come out of this is that folks will start taking advantage and will be able to support uh, more small and medium-sized processing plants. Um, We were talking earlier about the concentration in the beef and pork markets in particular. Um, The more that we can have small and regional kind of processing uh, there, I think we'll continue to help farmers find new markets, uh, allow consumers to make sure that they're getting uh, U.S. grown product, um, and be able to kind of help... uh, Get a larger share of that uh, of that food dollar. So I think that one of the things I'm hopeful on the outside of this is that we will be kind of growing these uh, small and regional uh, kind of markets in a way that will help a lot of farmers out there. But I think um, the other thing that we're going to see uh, is that for farmers and ranchers, uh, particularly in the Midwest. uh, they have some soul searching to do right now. Uh, do they continue to try to just produce for this uh, global commodity market when all of their costs are going up um, and their prices uh, for the raw commodity is not? Uh, we have to find ways, uh, again, of capturing more of that dollar uh, through value add and so forth. And because this, um, this cycle is just going to continue Uh, If we don't, and what we will see is more accelerated uh, consolidation of farms um, and, quite frankly, a weakening of rural communities. Um, All of this is, I I would just add on this question of the impact on the pandemic. It's hard to talk about this without talking about rural health care, because rural health care is a real problem, even before we got to the pandemic. Um, As we approached the pandemic and we knew that this was going to hit these rural hospitals uh, really hard, Uh, they don't have the resources. Uh, We are able to target some additional resources there, but I'm a little fearful of what is going to happen on the backside of this and whether or not that rural healthcare infrastructure is going to be able to survive uh, because they haven't been able to cover their cost. Um, And we have lost too many rural hospitals. Too many residents out there have to already drive 50, 100 miles plus to get good critical care, um, and uh, we may see also a, a more ex, more exodus of farmer, or uh, sorry, of um, uh, rural healthcare providers uh, outside of uh, those rural communities as well. So this all kind of compounds each other, uh, and, it, and it has to all be addressed together.
2: And I would encourage anybody who isn't uh, plugged into the Fastline Fast Track podcast to go back to Fastline.com. Also Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio and go back and look at those episodes we did in April. We had an episode in there where we Uh, got pretty deep into this issue of rural health care and i hope you go and listen to that because we brought in some experts who kind of broke this down and 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 helped us understand a little bit more about some of the inherent challenges there and also some of the opportunities uh, uh, for folks who could come in and do it the right way so i hope you go back and and listen to those when i tell you i also want to mention that uh, uh, in talking about the, uh, the take that farmers get out of every dollar that's spent at the grocery store, you guys did a nice piece on that, uh, Hannah Peckman and your office did, and, uh, has some really great charts with that, that break down and, and show, uh, consumers just, uh, what, what, that looks like for farmers of different commodities. Uh, so we're going to throw that up on our social media so you can take a look at that and, uh, and kind of become familiar with that yourselves. Well, I tell you what, as we get down the home stretch here, of what has been a really tumultuous year so far, <laughs> I'm afraid to ask what's around the corner, but uh, what are some of the things that are still on your radar screen here in terms of hot button issues or, or things that, that farmers and ranchers really need
3: to be paying attention to here in the in the third and fourth quarter of the year? Yeah, so obviously in terms of pandemic There was a lot of push in the beginning of what exactly needed to happen Uh, and that was everything from regulatory relief from transporting things you know trying to deal with all of the regulation and how do we freeze up some of that in order to make um, um, uh, things actually flow out there uh, given all the restrictions that were being placed Uh, what needed to be lifted uh, in order to make some things uh, uh, in this food chain actually function well. Um, then there was the uh, focus on what is that uh, financial relief uh, that uh, the US government could provide. Um, and we had that first, you know, couple tranches there. And that's what we're dealing with right now through USDA. So as Congress is looking at what do they do next, I think for us uh, and for our uh, farmers and ranchers across the country, it's about you know, talking about things that, you know, what's working in this package? What did they miss in this package? We know that there are certain commodities that just didn't get uh, included uh, for whatever reason. Uh, we know that certain folks who grow and actually process some of their uh, product uh, weren't uh, adequately captured. So I think this next round, which we're hoping um, Congress will sort through in the next few weeks, uh, will really be trying to fill in the gap, uh, if you will. Uh, we know that USDA has been mo- moving through some of the, uh, uh, the cash that was available, uh, to give out to farmers, farmers are signing up for that. Uh, but we also know that, you know, a lot of folks, uh, they're not spending nearly as much money as they anticipated. So I think it'll give us a chance to kind of figure out who is not getting the help, why, and can we fill those gaps? But longer term, um, I think as we look ahead, it's hard to talk about markets and it's hard to talk about the pandemic. We we'll talked a little bit about climate change. Um, trade, um, you know, we're certainly uh, not opposed to trade. We need those markets, we need to be able to move those. Uh, but this focus that we've had over the last few years uh, and this battle that we've had on China where we just went after China without taking on, you know, grabbing our allies around the world and actually really focusing in on them, I think really left us here with, uh, you know, much more damage. We dug a huge hole. We've maybe thrown a couple of shovelfuls of dirt back in that hole on China, and we've claimed victory. Well, China is, you know, how many billions of bushels behind their obligations on this first phase? You know, we see the headlines, you know, China's buying again. But it you dig just a little bit deeper there, China is doing what China has always done. They make initial promises and then they do not fulfill them. So this idea that somehow this will be different on there, I think is is really short-sighted. We need a different approach uh, on trade. We need to really be focused on uh, getting real results in China. We need to work with our partners and allies around the world. We need to build better trade agreements. Um, we're obviously talking to the United Kingdom right now. Um, but we have the EU right now. Those folks are all looking at what we've done with China and reaping the benefits of it. Uh, we see what uh, what Brazil and South America is doing. Uh, we need a different approach there. It's not working for us. And then just going back uh, to um, finding ways uh, to get supply and demand under control While we look to trade for additional markets, we can't rely on them to be our only survival because we know that that results in very, very low margins. And ultimately, for most family farmers, that means losses that they have to try to carry from year to year.
2: I'll tell you what, Rob, if folks want to know more about the work being done by the National Farmers Union, where can they go to learn more?
3: Well, certainly uh, first check out our website, which is www.nfu.org or we are also found on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and most of the uh, social medias, uh, of Facebook. Uh, So uh, happy. uh, All of our contact information is there. Um, uh, We are really proud of being a grassroots organization. Uh, Everything that we push for, everything that we fight for, comes directly from uh, the farm up. It is not driven out of D.C. or some national office. It's driven from the grassroots level uh, all the way up.
2: Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on FastLine Fast Track, and I hope you'll come back to join us again in the future to keep this dialogue going.
3: Well, once again, I'll put in a plug for broadband, sorry for the technical challenges, and give thanks to my local county library here for allowing me to use their services today. So.
2: Again, that was Rob LaRue, president of the National Farmers Union. Well, next up on the show, we continue our profile of Corn Warriors Season 4 competitors with another guy who's a rookie on the show, but no novice to farming. Jake Droz is a second-generation farmer from Allegan, Michigan, who farms with his dad, John, and his brother, Ryan. They farm about 7,000 acres of corn, soybeans, and milo. And his record corn yield is 339 bushels per acre irrigated. Jake, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. thanks a bunch how's it going oh it's going great i tell you what i I know you guys are in the thick of growing season here and you've been out uh uh, checking out these fields what are they looking like this year for you
4: uh the corn's all right just got done pollinating so we're still waiting to see how the tips fill out but i'd say the irrigated corn will be decent and non irrigated corn around here and it looks good but now we've been walking some of it probably looks better from the road than it actually is out there so if I was going to recommend anything I'd say go walk your fields.
2: Uh, and that's one thing that I know uh, kind of uh, learning a little bit about you is that the area of southwest Michigan uh, that you farm is not an easy spot to farm with a lot of moisture and and uh, sandy soil and so forth and uh, so, so you so uh, you do a lot of leg work and uh, and get really up close and personal to kind of figure out what you got there
4: yep It. Uh, yeah we do a lot of scouting we get a lot of disease here we're up in that uh, Lake Michigan, it gives us a haze. Come, well, like now August in the morning, so it's wet every morning. You know, you know, it's all coming up from the bottom. So you know, we take out a lot of disease, and so yeah, we do a lot of scouting.
2: So you're also doing a lot of a lot of tissue sampling, a lot of soil testing, and uh, you've also been working on uh, some some compaction uh, reduction methods as well.
4: Yeah, yeah, yes, we do a lot. We run a ripper across most of our acres in the fall if we can. Um, We have to. We have to, I guess you'd call it mulch tilling is what it actually is called. I mean, if we don't no-till, we probably do, uh, I'd say 50 acres out of 7,000. So we don't do a lot of no tilling here.
2: So one of the big developments uh, for you guys for the 2020 growing season on your farm is the implementation of Y-drop for the first time. What have you learned from that so far?
4: Yeah, so the Y-drops, they work pretty good dropping uh, dropping whatever it is you want to apply right next to the stalk on both sides. It works pretty darn good. Uh, We've seen a bigger root mass. The uptake is quite a bit faster, so that's that was pretty good. Uh, and actually, with that uptake being faster, it's held it a lot longer too. Or it's actually it's, it's made those roots want I guess want to go farther. So that far, green that corn staying a lot greener throughout the season.
2: So you've been at this since two thousand and eight. So again, uh, no, no novice to this. And uh, uh, your dad started in the in the late seventies. You you guys have built a pretty impressive operation there.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did pretty good. You know. I don't, obviously, you know, it was probably it was a lot of hard work getting it all going, so yeah, he, yeah, he did a good job getting it all getting it started from the ground and all that, so I guess, I guess Ryan and I are pretty lucky.
2: And I know you're the kind of the face of it here for the TV show, but uh, as I pointed out with a couple of these other Warriors, with, with an operation that size, you're, you're definitely not doing it alone.
4: Yeah, no, yeah, it definitely takes all of us, and uh, you know, we got we had two other guys in our shop, uh, Gary and Randy. They do quite a bit for us too. They do actually. <laughs> at times, they probably do more than I do. It seems like <laughs> at least they they definitely know more about things than I do. So it definitely helps having those guys around. And there's a few other guys that I, you know, there's just there's lots there's too many to name. Not to mention the people you work with outside of just the farm itself
2: so in 2012 you became one of the first in the state of michigan to achieve a verified third-party check and recheck of 300 bushels an acre what, what was that like for you uh it was
4: pretty cool uh i mean the corn it, it looked good all through that through that summer so it was, it was pretty neat um yeah if you want to go off a date we were the first ones and we just were second that year but we harvested it for the guy the other guy so that, that was cool too
2: <laughs> I know it's exciting to, to continue to boost those yields and, and be competitive like that. I'm sure it's uh, a big driver to the show, but at the end of the day, it's about making money, too, huh?
4: Yeah, yeah, you know, that's the one thing you take with the contest is a uh, good friend out east of mine, he's always said, you know, if you can't afford to lose a little money on 10 to 15 acres. You, should, you probably shouldn't be farming it, you know. I yeah. Couldn't agree more. So, you know, you learn a lot from the contest and you start, you know, find something that works and you start implementing it across more acres and, you know. Have it across the entire farm.
2: What was it about this Corn Warriors TV show that intrigued you?
4: Oh, uh, I think it's just cool to watch all these all these top guys. You know, not so much duel it out with each other, but just to just to watch everyone's practices. I you know it, you know if it were up sort of to me you know you'd have fifty or sixty different operations on it. But you know that's 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 probably not possible. Obviously, you know it's it's cool to just see how different people do different things on their operations. For their needs.
2: Well, if anybody could uh, cover fifty or sixty, it'd be Seth. I know that guy uh, wor- wor- works <laughs> his tail off. Uh, he and Jared oh, to to catch all that. What has that experience been like uh, filming with those guys?
4: Yeah, so they, yeah, so the first time they came, they they brought a few people. Is it yeah, it's you know they're 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 not in the way as, as much as you would think. So I mean, it's it's what, you know it's funny you fly around and they know everybody you know somebody says something you all know, start laughing you know they're there while you're working. So it's it's cool, you know. Him and Jared, they do a really good job when they've been coming out here the last couple of times. So yeah, it's been, it's been
2: fun. Have you ha- had a chance to uh, touch base with any of the other competitors there? Get to know any of them at all?
4: I, I, not as much as I'd like. I've 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 gotten to know Kevin Cobb uh, and his wife just a little. Like I I met him a couple of years ago, so I've gotten to know him just a little bit. And so um, Eric, I've talked to Eric a couple of times online just a little bit, and the same with Brooks. I mean, everybody sounds like they're, you know, really cool people. Dan, I have talked to Dan Clark, but Dan's, Dan's a cool dude. So, uh. you know, every, everybody's, everybody seems to be pretty nice, and, you know, obviously they do a good job. So, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty fun.
2: So what are some of your goals for, for the farm, not not just for the show, but uh, for, for the future of, of your family farm?
4: Uh, I'd say, obviously, obviously the one, probably the one goal everybody has is uh, turn a profit every year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with the way... But everything is over the past few years. That's kind of hard. You're just, you're, you're hoping to be, it's, it sounds bad saying this, but you're hoping to be the best of the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know a lot of people out there who are making them. If you are, I mean, Hey, that's half off to you. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're watching budget lines just like everybody else. And it's tough. Another big goal of ours, you know, we'd love to hit four hundred bush of corn. We thought we had a shot this year. until so that windstorm came and knocked it all down. So uh, I'd say our goal this year is—you know—we might not win, but we just we'd like to have a couple three hundred bushel yields out there. That'd be cool. That'd, that'd be
2: neat. That's excellent. It seems like quite an experience here. So we're we're all. Uh, waiting to see what that's going to shape up to look like. The season four of corn warriors is going to hit RFD TV in September. Also carbon TV and Amazon prime. And if you're a yellow gold member, you can get early release content. A lot of that's out there now as well. And you can uh, get that via subscription on the website and that website, corn tv.com again, CornWarriorsTV.com. tv.com. Hope everybody will go and check that out. And, Jake, we wish you the best of luck on it, man, and uh, I can't wait to uh, see how things play out here.
4: Yeah, yeah, you know, like I said, it, uh, you definitely can't. You know, I don't care if you're two hundred acres or seven thousand acres or twenty dollars; it doesn't really matter. You can't do it alone. <laughs> it's it's tough out there.
2: Well, and that's that's uh, definitely a fair point. And uh, the the one thing that we we've highlighted along the way with this series is that you guys are, are bringing education to the industry as well. So the, the things that you're doing here and sharing on the show are, are uh, things that other folks can take out into the field and and try and hopefully increase their yield as well.
4: Yeah. If I could encourage one thing for some, for any any farmer or anybody in the ag, you know, there's a lot of programs out there, whether it's Corn Warriors or, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other programs out there, you know, there's a lot of stuff. To learn. You know, one big thing is, you know, if we ever get farm shows back, I, couldn't recommend just go to farm shows ask questions you know that's that's if there's one takeaway from me that's helped us build deals over the past 12 20 years whatever you want to call it it's been going to farm shows and just learning from other farmers networking it's yeah it, it's a lot of fun
2: yeah and here's hoping we get those back soon because everybody wants to get out and and uh, get face to face again and, and do that learning so Again, go check out Corn Warriors season four. And Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fastline Fast Track.
4: Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, everybody who's been listening, you know, good luck out there. You know, it should be an interesting fall.
2: <laughs> yeah, interesting to say the least. And we will keep you all posted on everything going on with Corn Warriors and the fall harvest right here on Fastline Fast Track. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we have a special treat for you this week. Singer-songwriter Craig Campbell joins us to talk about his career and about some great new music. Craig, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. What's happening, my man? Excited to have you on the show to talk about what's been a big couple weeks for you here with the new single, Fly My Country Flag, which hit CMT a couple weeks ago. And you've been out on the road uh, getting to do something that a lot of other folks in the industry aren't getting to do right now.
5: Yeah, man, we've been looking forward to this, uh, uh, flying my country flag. We released, uh, right before, uh, the 4th of July that weekend. And, and then we, we had the video teed up, ready to go. So we, we released it this past week. CMT did the world premiere, uh, on Monday. And, uh, it was a lot of fun to make that video, but, uh, yeah, this song is just, we, I love it. I've, I've always loved it ever since I wrote it. I wrote it with, uh, some buddies of mine back in 2014 and, and, uh, it just, it took a while, but we finally found the perfect time to put it out. And, um, it's, it's one of my favorites I've ever been a part of
2: Well, I might be a little bit biased, but I feel like it's the song country music needs right now. So I was super excited when I heard that song and, and saw some of the imagery that went with it. Cause it, it, it dovetails exactly, uh, with our audience.
5: Yeah, no, it's, uh, and honestly I didn't, I, when we wrote it in 2014, uh, and, and obviously none of this was, uh, was going on back then, but, um, uh, you know, and I don't want to, say that that has anything to do with why we wanted to put it out because it doesn't uh the the reason i wanted to put this song out is because i loved it and uh, when i when i do release music i have one thing in mind is i want people to know a little bit more about me with each song that i put out you know i'm very proud to be a country boy and i'm very proud to be uh to be able to sing country music for a living and then i'm also i'm proud to be from from this country right here so uh that's what that song's all about
2: well, I tell you what, uh, you, you tee that up perfectly. So, uh, to take us back to where all this began for you, Lyons, Georgia, understand you had some ties to agriculture at an early age.
5: Yeah, man. I, I grew up, I grew up in a very rural town, uh, Lyons, Georgia. We share the, the County seat, uh, we, we, Lions is the County seat, uh, in Tombs County with Vidalia, which, uh, if people don't aren't familiar with Vidalia, we, we have the Vidalia onions. And, uh, so uh, every, every year, uh, around March, late March, early April, the, the entire county. And then a couple of counties that surround it. I mean, it stinks bad boy. Cause we got all them <laughs> onions, flip them over and they're letting them sit on top of the ground for a few days and before they get harvested. Um, and then, um, you know, a lot of tobacco, a lot of corn, a lot of soybeans. Um, and, and, uh, but, but for me, Uh, my very first job that I ever had, I was 12 years old and I got hired to work on a tobacco harvester. And, uh, I did that every summer for probably five or six years. And, and as a 12 year old, you know, I'm getting paid 120, $150 a week cash. Uh, that was a big deal, man. I, uh, I remember the first, my first four paychecks, I bought four pairs of shoes (laughs) But yeah, we uh, I grew up with I grew up with farming all around me,
2: and I tell you what, uh, South Georgia holds a special place in our heart here. The Sunbelt Ag Expo every year down in Moultrie, and unfortunately, we found out last week we lost that one for this year. So, uh, punting to 2021, and I, I'm disappointed. So many great folks down there in South Georgia. We always have yeah. a ball down there. Ag
5: Expo is. is- Awesome dude. I mean I you people that you know they see tractors running up and down the road. I was like, no. I said until you go to the Ag Expo, uh you ain't seen a tractor yet. No. Nah. They got monster tractors down
2: there. Yeah, and it draws a big crowd from from many states all over the southeast and uh yeah. Uh, man, I can't wait to get back down there again next year. So when did music enter the picture for you? When, what, what are your first recollections of music? Not, not even just playing it, but, uh, but actually hearing it and, and making it a part of your life.
5: Well, I mean, it's been, it's been, um, I tell people all the time that I, you know, music chose me. I didn't choose it. Um, I, I remember being in church standing beside my mama and her singing, she's singing over there singing harmony to these to these hymns you know and and i'm and i'm thinking to myself like that's that sounds good but it's not right it's not correct like she's not singing the melody that everybody else is singing she's doing something else and it's and it's and it's perfect so um i wanted to know more about that and you know so i've from an early age I, i i remember those things being in church and and learning what harmony was and, and and not being able to walk walk by a piano without trying to sit down and and pick something out um I, and i and i would say that started at a, at a very young age
2: when i tell you what a lot of people look at especially at that age piano lessons is a a, a burden or a punishment but uh, you put it to good use
5: i did you know i took i took a, a handful of lessons but my 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 teacher recognized pretty early on that I, I, wasn't, I wasn't having it. I was not, uh, I was not a student that could be taught. Um, I, all I wanted to do was be able to play. I didn't want to, I didn't want to learn how to play. I just wanted to play. Yeah. So, um, I, I, taught myself, um, uh, and, and learn by ear. I just, I just wanted to be able to play certain songs. I didn't want to know, you know, the, the technical part of it. I just, just wanted to be able to play, play songs on the piano and, um, And and the bad thing about when I was taking lessons, I never learned anything. I just memorized it. Uh Um, So that was lessons were were okay, but I I I did a lot better with for myself.
2: Was country music a big part around the household? Did you hear a lot of it growing up?
5: Yeah, you know, um, it was mostly southern gospel as a kid. But but when my brother got his driver's license and started driving us back and forth to school, um, that's when I got that's when I got exposed to uh, to the early nineties, you know, Randy Travis and Shenandoah. And, and that's, that's, that's my earliest recollection of like, this is the good stuff.
2: So coming out of it, who were some of your musical heroes?
5: All those guys, man, I, you know, if, if there was a, a, um, singer that was having hits on the radio between the years, 1988 and 1995, I was loving it. Uh, Alan Jackson, Tracy Lawrence, Clint black, you know, Travis Tritt's probably my favorite, but, um, all of those singers, uh, that was coming out. I mean, back then it was just, everybody was
2: awesome. When I tell you what, to fast forward a few years, not to jump around too much, but, uh, in your career, you, you got a chance to rub elbows with a lot of those guys.
5: I have, I have, I've been very fortunate, um, uh, over the past eight or so years, I've, I've, been able to open up for a lot of my, a lot of my heroes and a lot of my friends, uh, share the stage with a lot of, with a lot of cool, cool people, um, uh, I know uh, I've, I've actually Travis Tripp being my hero. Um, I, I always wanted to meet him, but I wanted it to mean something. So a couple of years ago I was, I was fortunate to have him come in and sing on a record with me. Mm. Um, I've opened for Alan Jackson a bunches of times. We, we, uh, we had some, some common threads, uh, that we didn't know about. Um, so I've gotten to hang out with him a little bit. Um, You know, and I played piano for Tracy Bird for a while and I played piano for Luke Bryan. And so over the past eight or so years, I've been in their bands and I've also opened up for them. So it's it's a I've had a lot. I've been blessed.
2: It's quite a surreal experience coming from uh, just a small town, isn't
5: it? It is, man. You know, I always wanted to just be able to play music and pay my bills. I mean, that was that was it. I don't care. You know, fast forward to when I got to Nashville even then i just wanted to be able to play music in nashville and pay my bills with it uh uh, wanting to be on the radio came a little bit later on but um i still i still wake up all the time saying wow you know i before covid um i get to i get to go play music for a living and that's just you know i I remember alan jackson uh I, I, i think he's the one that said it but he's like you know when you figure out a way to make a living, doing what you love, you'll never work another day. And that's, uh, it's just, it's pretty awesome.
2: Well, I tell you what, one of the good things that's come out here recently, all my friends drink beer, set this one up for me.
5: Well, all my friends drink beer was a song I wrote with my buddies and they just, one of, one, of, one of the co-writers, he had that title and I was like, that's amazing. And so then we looked up the title to see if anybody had it, had it, had ever written that song and crazy enough there was not one title in this whole planet (laughs) with all my beer so we wrote it and didn't take us but about a couple of hours and and uh and i knew right away i was like man i'm i'm gonna start playing this one live because i know my my fans are gonna love it and then um once again once i was independent um i i saw how my fans reacted to it live and so that's, a, that's, the, that's all the evidence I need to record that song and put it out.
2: So you were able to pull in Michael Ray, Kanan Smith, Jimmy Allen, Granger Smith, and, uh, quite a few more people for that one.
5: Yeah. For the video, they, they uh, um, like I said, I, I've been fortunate to have, to make some really good friends in this business. And so I reached out and said, Hey guys, I'm doing this video. Uh, I know everybody's kind of social distancing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we, uh, I want y'all to be in this video. So send me a video of y'all drinking some beer. so. That's how that came about.
0: I'm talking about them shirt off their back home, boys and girls, all in blue. Collared rednecks around the world with a dog in the cab, cooler in the back, got ice doing work on a 12 pack. All them small town boys sitting 35 high, and them blue jean babies at her down to ride. That's the way we were raised up around here. If you tip it on back, turn it on up You can bet your ass you're gonna fit right in around here Cause all my friends drank beer Goes down pretty good with a country song Goes down a little better when you're singing along So can I get a hey y'all, hell yeah, cheers Home saying you gotta be somebody I'm just saying you gotta be able to hold on to a cold one every now and again cause all my friends drink beer on a Friday night stacking them cans man Georgia pine high rays hell with a Dixie cup if you tip it on back turn it on up you can bet your ass
2: unlike a lot of people with musical aspirations, when you got done with high school, you didn't just uh, load everything up and uh, he- head down to Nashville. Uh, you-, you took some time at home and uh, took a little bit of different career
5: path. Well, I wished I would have. I wish I'd have, if I'd have known this is, this was going to work out, I would have <laughs> probably, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, people should quit school, but uh, I would have dropped out as soon as I turned 16 and moved to Nashville. But um uh yeah when i graduated high school i had a fiance, and and we we you know we thinking about building a house and get going out on our own and everything you know that kind of crazy stuff uh so i was like how am i how am i going to do this so i needed a job i knew i didn't want to go to college so uh i went and uh applied to be a correctional officer and got the gig so i was uh, i was a correctional officer for about two and a half years right out of high school
2: what was that experience like?
5: I was okay, you
2: know. People were like,
5: oh my gosh, you know, you worked at a prison, and I was like, yeah, but I mean, for the most part, those guys, they, they, uh, they know their role. They don't want to be in prison and 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 make life hard for themselves. So they do what they're told for the most part. It's all about respect. I respect them. They respect me, and it was uh it was a, it was a, it was a good
2: job. So, what was the turning point that took you away from that and uh and led you down the country music path
5: well i had always wanted to just play music like i said earlier about just um, being able to play music for a living i was like that's that would be awesome and then um i quit uh the department of corrections and was like uh, i was had become buddies with the, the bar owner in my hometown. I said, Hey, if I put a band together, will you let me play here? And, and he's like, yeah, come on. And, um, so that's how that all came about. And then once that happened, that's, uh, I have literally been paying playing music since, uh, since that day.
2: And I understand it was about 2002 that, that you went to Nashville. Is that right?
5: Yep. Moved to Nashville in 02. Um, took me, took me a few years to kind of get my feet you know, wet as far as like finding out who uh, meeting people and and what direction to go and how to get things done and this and that. So, uh, took about a year, two years to to get all that in place. But it wasn't long after moving to Nashville that I got the Luke Bryan gig.
2: Another South Georgia guy. So you had some, uh, you know, a bond over that, huh?
5: Yeah. Uh, I didn't know Luke until I moved here, but we, uh, we definitely had a lot of the same friends and, and, uh, he grew up on the opposite side of the state, but, Uh, we hit it off really, really quick. And, and, and honestly, he, he was, he helped me out a lot early on. So, uh, um, I I owe a lot to Luke.
2: So when, when you came up to Nashville, I understand, uh, you did it on a true shoe steering budget, huh?
5: Yeah. I, well, my buddy was living in Nashville and he's like, Hey, if I get you a job, will you move up here with me? Cause he was getting a divorce and he needed a roommate. And I was like, yeah. Um, and um i came up on a thursday had my my interview was on a friday she called me that that afternoon and said you got the job and then um i went back home loaded all my stuff up my mama gave me uh two rolls of quarters and a a roll of dimes and, and said this is all i got baby um so that was that's how i put gas in the truck and literally i ran out of gas as i pulled into the apartment complex that i was staying at so so uh but I got, I made it. I'm here.
2: Well, you you made the most of that change, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Man, that's awesome. And then you uh, got some gigs on uh, Lower Broadway, doing stuff down there, and singing demos, and man, just grinded it out for a few years.
5: Yeah, like I said, I was just that was that was my goal was just to be able to live in Nashville and play music and uh, keep food on the table. That was it. That's all I wanted to do.
2: Mm-hmm. So you talked about Luke. When did you get hooked up with Tracy Byrd?
5: Oh, it wasn't long after that. I guess I, my first gig was was uh, March of two thousand five. Was when I got uh, called to do that gig.
2: And uh, what, what what did that whole experience of actually getting out and touring teach you?
5: Oh man, you know, it's just for Luke, it was like learning how to entertain. I mean, was, he's he's been that guy from day one. He he knows he knows what he's what he's doing for sure. And then you know, you just sit back and take notes and say, man, if you want to be able to to work a crowd just just do what he does and, and with with tracy it was just it was one of those like man I, I, would, I would hang around him during his meet and greet he was just so good to his fans and and um and he just always put out good music and he was a great singer live and that was that was like it's just you hear people on the radio and you're like they're great singers but then you hear them live and, and they're not they're not yeah. it's not as polished but he always sounded just like his records and i and i thought that was uh that was commendable, you know, to be able to do that. And so, I, you know, I took lots of notes from these guys.
2: And anybody who thinks this thing uh, just happens overnight, you were at it for about seven years before you got your first record deal.
5: Yeah. Um, moved here in 02 and, and uh, finally finally caught somebody's eye around 2008 um, and then uh, signed signed a deal in 09 and um, put out music in 2010. And the rest is history
2: and i tell you uh man just some great songs when you think about uh uh family man and and fish and out of my head uh and the the hits just kept coming what do you take away from that time is uh, just uh the, your fondest memories of of that period
5: oh man i mean there's all there's so many to list i mean you know it never gets old to hear your hear your songs on the radio uh no matter mm-hmm. if it's the first time you hear it or if you've heard it a thousand times um love Hearing yourself on, on a radio station is pretty cool. Uh, some of the venues I've gotten played, people I've opened for, I mean, those I've had a lot of wow moments. Uh, so yeah, there's too just too many to list.
2: Well, I tell you what, uh, one thing that has always stood out to me about you, uh, I'm trying to remember the timing here, May 9th, 2014. Uh, the, the news got out that uh, uh, that your label w- was closing down and uh, and kind of left you without a home. Uh, Four days later, May thirteenth, two thousand fourteen, I happened to be in the audience at the Tin Roof in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, you were you were on stage that night as you were starting to uh, t- to catch on with another hit here that was climbing up the charts. But, but one of the things that stood out to me, you're four days away from that that news, and man, you you, would, uh, you had such an upbeat. Uh, uh attitude about it and and it had so much grace and dignity in talking about that and that left such a huge impression on me
5: well like look and and when the record label closed i knew i I had i had a hit song on the radio and i I was like well we can't can't just stop doing what we're doing we still have a hit song and and radio had invested in me and invested in the music and so i just i kept i kept going There was no there's nothing no reason for me to stop and And in particular with radio, uh, you know, that 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 visit, you know, the when the record label closed, that meant they didn't pay for nothing anymore. So I actually came out of my pocket to come up to that radio station and visit with them. But it meant a lot to me to be able to keep those uh, engagements and and uh, not miss them. Because, like I said, radio had been super good to me and I wasn't going to let them down and. There was no reason for me to keep, for, for me to stop doing what I was doing. It was good. I enjoyed that show. And, and you know, being able to play in those in the, the those venues like that where it's up close and personal and, and just me and my guitar and maybe one, one other guy playing guitar. Uh, I I really did enjoy uh, those, those kind of settings and being able to play the songs and talk about the songs. So those, yeah, I love those.
2: So then a couple of years later, you catch on uh, with, with Red Bow, which is a uh, a division of Broken Bow Records. And uh, you laid down a couple more big hits tomorrow tonight and also Outskirts of Heaven. What, what, what do you take away from that time as some of your fondest recollections uh, during that period?
5: Uh, well, I don't have many uh, with, with Broken Bow. It wasn't the best experience. But, um, you know, Outskirts of Heaven, we'll talk about that. I remember play, writing that song, and I remember playing it at some some uh, some radio events with with audiences and and getting some some reaction out of that song. And and um, I just knew that song was special. And I, you know, I went back to the record label. and I was like, "Hey, we gotta we gotta record this and put it on the radio." And and uh, they they believed in me. They believed in that song, and, and that's what we did. So. I I would say outskirts is probably my one of my most proud moments as a songwriter. And then also to have it on the radio was 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 pretty cool, too.
2: So, man, listen to that song and uh, and and knowing everything you've gone through on the label end of this. And I know there's a lot that the casual fan probably doesn't understand about it. But but what is it about this business that makes it so tough for some really talented people uh, to to uh, get ahead sometimes?
5: man it's all it's politics man politics is is touches everything and you know the whole music business it truly is a business uh and if you don't if you don't if you're not somebody's guy like if you're not there if you don't have a champion uh up at the very top of the chain then you you're more than likely not gonna not gonna succeed um, if you look at the historical part of a, of a record label there's there's always going to be three or four that are absolutely crushing it. And then there's a whole bunch of just people that, that are barely getting by. Um, And that's just tough. If you're not, if you're not one of those people, then it's just, it's a, it's an uphill battle.
2: Well, and I can tell you, if uh, if Craig Campbell's nobody's guy, then I think country music is stupid. But that's just my <laughs> that's my personal opinion. I'm going to leave it at that. But uh, I tell you what, uh, that left you as a free agent, and the first thing you did was get to work on on putting together a really solid team around you. Uh, of people that uh, that you could use to kind of take this on as an independent and and it looks like you're having some fun with it
5: yeah i mean it's finally finally in a position now i could just make my own decisions and pick the songs and record the songs that i want and don't have to ask nobody for permission and don't have to have my dreams crushed by somebody that's writing checks and uh it's just uh it's just a lot a lot better mental space for me, you know, uh, being able to do it the way I want to do it. So
2: what has that afforded you the opportunity to do from a creative standpoint?
5: Do what I want, yeah. you know, there's don't have to ask somebody, you know, Hey, I love this song. Can I record it? And then I'm no, you can't, uh, especially those people, those same people that are, that are writing the checks that, that ultimately help you with your career have never been to my house. They don't know me, they don't know my family, they don't, they don't know my girls, they don't they've never been to my shows. They don't know what my fans want to hear. So for them to sit back behind some some computer screen and dictate what songs and music that I record and also release, it just it don't make any sense. So
2: yeah.
5: Um I just I'm so glad I don't have to play that game anymore.
2: Where, where are you on a motivation scale these days? It sounds like you're you're pretty motivated to uh, to put out some great stuff.
5: Oh man, every day. And that's that's, you know, the whole time I was with Broken, Bow, we put out we put out one album, one, and it was just an EP, a six song EP, and, and I was there for five years. And uh, up until that point, uh, it had been five years before I put that that product out. And then when I'm, it was two years later before I was able to put something else out. And I was like, guys, this this just ain't the way to do it. So uh, I'm excited to be able to put songs out, put them out, and you know, every couple months. Just keep it going, man. That's just what it's all about. My fans want to hear new music, so I want—I just and that's what I want to do. I want to give it to them.
2: So you consistently still writing
5: all the time, mm-hmm. all the time.
2: What's that process look like for you?
5: Well, I got a handful of guys that I write with all the time. And, there's, uh, you know, during this whole quarantine stuff, I've, I've been uh, I've been writing some songs um, via the Zoom, but I don't like it. I don't like doing that. So and I, so I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, I, I write with people that I want to write with, uh, on a, uh, you know, I, I let them know. it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm down to write, but we, uh, I prefer to do it face to face. And so that's what we've been doing.
2: Well, before we get out of here this week, we talked earlier about new music you have that's out on CMT. I know it's one that will definitely appeal to our ag crowd and our tractor pulling crowd. Tell me a bit about flying my country flag.
5: Yeah. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier about, uh, just, one of the reasons I wanted to do it this way was just just those, those are some questions that I, if anybody ever had to ask about me that, that I, the song answered them. Uh, and then with the video, I knew I wanted to do something that was super like rural America. Uh, and it just so happened by the, about the time we were shooting this video, uh, where I live here in middle Tennessee, they were having the, the annual tractor pull. And I was like, there ain't nothing more, more America than, than, a saturday night drinking cold beer and, and watching tractor, tractors and trucks pull these sleds up and down the, the the track so uh we we did a lot of the film there and then uh i got my band together we did some performance stuff and um i just thought the way we did it represented the song uh pretty
2: good well here it is for you now craig campbell with flying my country flag on fastline fast track
0: Smaller, and the people start packing it up When the cornrows start getting shorter There ain't no dust cloud behind my truck That'll make you roll your window
2: Uh, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line, Fast Track. I hate that we're doing it from so far apart, and I hope next time we do it, uh, we get together at the Ernest Tub Record Shop or at Hank Snow's place and, uh, and sit down uh, one-on-one and do this.
5: Sounds good to me, man.
2: We want to send a special shout-out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. They have a new Lynn Anderson exhibition open, and I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They've got a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise, and if they don't have it there, they'll find it for you. They're open Sunday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday and Saturday from 10 to 10. So stop by and say hi, and make sure you tell them that you heard it on Fast Line Faster track also want to say a special shout out to our friends at Farm Life and thank them for their support of Fast Line Fast Track. Go over if you haven't already done so and give them a like on Facebook so you can connect with them and with others interested in agriculture. And join me over on their page every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern as I join Brandon Deal to talk about the things that are on the minds of farmers. And speaking of things on the minds of farmers, harvest season is rapidly approaching for many farmers across the country. If you're in the market for combines, heads, grain carts, grain dryers, trailers, or anything else, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, please be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. Hey, remember to subscribe to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Also, be sure to hit us up on all the socials: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for me to get on out of here. So, until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back. And bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer focused marketing solutions, visit fastlinemediagroup.com and check out our brand websites fastline.com, bigag.com, and pinktractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com.